Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things. Usually those things are books. Andrea is a librarian. She's also my mom. In case you're wondering how I knew her, it's because I share half of her genes. Uh, I'm Nate. I said that already. I'm a writer, kind of, by which I mean I'm not a successful one. You can read some of my writing if you go to my Twitter account. It's Nate Osterman, at Nate Osterman. It's not Nate Osterman, at Nate Osterman. That's not a thing. Anyway, it's October, the month of uh, spooky stuff. Ghosts and goblins and ghouls and vampires and serial killers and chocolate marshmallow cereal given to you by a vampire. And uh, we read a book called Dark Harvest by Norman Partridge. So this book is the 2006 Bram Stoker Award winner. Yes. And if you know anything about the Bram Stoker Awards, or if you only know about the Bram Stoker Awards from Nate, they're always given to a bunch of weirdos. Yeah, the Bram Stoker Awards are weird. They're weirder than other genre awards. I'm not sure why. One of the things that I, I talk about, I've talked about before, is like, I think the first short story to win the Bram Stoker Award is literally about an evil bull toy. That should give you some sort of idea of what the Bram Stoker Awards are like. So I wanted to do a little thing before we get into talking about this book specifically. I want to say, this book's good. I liked it and enjoyed it. I think it's fun. It's got a really propulsive writing style. It's a little intense. It's got this like vibe that reminds me of like Bruce Springsteen meets... Stephen King. It's a really quick and breezy read. It's very cinematic in its structure and description. Uh, but part of the deal with the book is the actual setup of the plot is kind of doled out gradually. There's this gradual building of your understanding of what's going on and what's exactly at stake. Now, I'm not normally a guy who believes in spoilers. I think the whole concept of a spoiler warning is a net negative for our culture. But I do think there's something pleasurable to experience this gradual crescendo of understanding through reading the book. It's got kind of a pleasant rhythm like a song. So if that's something that you want to experience and you this book sounds at all interesting and you trust my recommendation, then you might want to go read it before we talk about it. Because even attempting to discuss the plot here is going to spoil some of the reveals. Because they're necessary to understanding exactly what is going on in the action of the plot of this book. Yeah, and I, it's only about 100 pages, and it's really easy to find copies of. So it is worth reading it. And then also, recently we found out, before after we started reading it, that they're making a movie of the novella. So if you want to read it before the movie comes out. Yeah, the movie will probably come out, you know, 2021, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, I think this is, there, it's, there's a very clear roadmap laid out in this book of how to adapt it into a movie. So hopefully they don't screw it up. So Dark Harvest was published in 2006 by Norman Partridge. He's not a really prolific writer, and he seems to mostly work in um, short stories or novellas. Mm-hmm. But he, like you said, he does have a very dynamic sort of cinematic style of writing. So why don't you give us a little um, overview of the plot? 
So this is a uh, it is a period piece. It's set in the early sixties. Yeah, I think so. In a midwestern town, unnamed. The town is not named, right? They never are. Uh, somewhere, presumably in like the breadbasket, or maybe not. I think it's a rural community. It's or... a, it is a rural community. So what happens is this town is like super isolated. Nobody ever leaves the town. Uh, they refer to the the like town limits as the line and every year a there is this ritual where a living scarecrow grows out in a cornfield just past the line uh called the uh, and the scarecrow is called the october boy or hacksaw face or sawtooth jack and it makes it is armed with a butcher knife and makes a desperate run for a church in the middle of town before midnight and it is the duty of all the boys in the town to try and kill the October boy. All the, like, teenage boys. And whoever kills the October boy gets to leave, gets a bunch of money, and their family gets a new car and a new house, and they get to leave the town. And that's the only way you're allowed to leave the town. Uh, the, so our protagonist, sort of, in the book is this boy named Pete McCormick, who's kind of this moody loner. His mother has passed away from cancer. His dad's an alcoholic who has drunk away his job at the Grain Elevator. I think you understand why I was comparing this to Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and he desperately wants to win the run and get out of town. Part of the deal with the run is they starve the boys for five days. Starve and like isolate in their rooms the boys for five days before the run. So they're hungry and desperate. And the October boy is full of candy. <laughs> so like... He can use his candy to lure the kids, and also they, like, extra want to kill him so they can eat the candy out of him because they're not allowed to eat for five days. And Pete sets out on the run, and almost he the first thing he does is break into the house of the town police officer, Jerry Ricks, who is an abusive prick who for some reason has singled out Pete for abuse and has beaten him up several times. He breaks into his house and steals his gun. Uh, and then he runs into a girl named Kelly Haynes, who's actually new to town. Her dad was drafted into World War II and jumped the line by never returning home, unlike the other GIs. And she then her parents died and she was dragged back to town to live with her aunt and uncle who owned the movie theater. And then what we find out is... Uh, Kelly's parents were hunted down by Jerry Ricks and the other representatives from the Harvesters Guild who are in charge of the town and they made sure to bring her back and they were punishing him for her dad for jumping the line and she, knowing what she knows which is that no one is actually allowed to leave the town she raises this possibility to Pete that whoever wins is actually killed and then makes the logical leap to they become the October boy and Pete calls his dad from the movie. He saves first Pete helped save Kelly from these two shitty football players with brakemen's clubs, whose dads work on the railroad who are accosting her for being out during the run, even though she's a girl and she beats up one of them with a, with the brakemen's club that she gets off of him. And Pete holds the other one at bay with the gun. And then they, he, Pete calls his dad, who can basically confirms the story and reveals that he was fired from his job because he was mouthing off about the nature of the town while he was drunk. And that's probably also why Jerry Ricks is so abusive to Pete, 
because he's mad at him for his dad. Because Jerry Ricks is the representative of the status quo and is very protective of what's going on in town. And they come up with a plan to escape the town using the... Kelly and Pete come up with a plan to escape the town using the run as cover. And all the while this is going on, we keep cutting back to the perspective of the October boy. Who we find out is Jim Shepard, the previous winner of the run, who was another moody loner who was a lot like Pete. And he is seemingly smarter than the other October boys. And he comes up with this plan to... He goes to his own house and has an existential crisis staring at the graffiti other people have made who have made him out to be like this rebel hero in winning the run, even though he was killed and destroyed by the town. He burns down his own house, which turns into a giant fire that is threatening to consume the entire town, which lures the Harvester Guild out of the church, including Jerry Ricks, but leaves his dad in the church with a shotgun to be the last line of defense against the October Boy breaching the perimeter of the church and ending the ritual. Eventually, things converge with Jerry Ricks chasing after the October Boy and Kelly and Pete helping the October Boy into the church, which ends the ritual. The fire begins to consume the rest of the town. Pete, Kelly, Pete's dad, and Pete's sister all escape from the town. The October Boy has a final fight with Jerry Ricks and explodes in flame, engulfing the rest of the town, and then he enters the movie theater and dies. And that is the story. That's pretty much the whole entire story. Yeah. I, too, enjoyed this story. It, it really, it reminded me sort of of that sort of classic 80s horror. The pacing really was like an 80s, like, horror story. It's not as intense or graphic as a lot of 80s horror stuff is. Yeah, and I think it's kind of, you can see that there's a lot of influences in this story and i think most forefront in the you know the entire concept of it is very much like something that stephen king would write i mean this classic sort of down on his luck hard scrabble boy who has a nemesis that's pretty much like i mean this is a con like a chronic pete is a very much a stephen king protagonist jerry ricks is very much this kind of human villain that stephen king loves Stephen King, a lot of times, he always has this sort of depiction of, like, um, people who have jobs and authority, like prison guards and police officers, that they're kind of like what he calls, like, a bad screw. Yeah. Which is, like, a bully. Mm -hmm. So there's this classic... It's a bully with institutional authority. Yes. And I think that's exactly what Jerry Ricks is. He's in charge of the town, protecting the town and protecting the harvest or guild and protecting the secret of the town but there are some problems with the story which i'm pretty sure you're aware of there's really no i mean maybe it's because the story is so short but there's really no background information one you know that there's a harvester guild and they're protecting this secret and you know that there is an october boy and he comes to life every halloween and there's this hunt they never really say why they're protecting this town and why they're continuing with this cycle. There's really no benefit to the town. The town is depressed. The economy is bad. The people are all unhappy. There's really no value in protecting this secret. Yes, exactly. I think that's... I actually really like that element. So I like that they don't really tell us the origin of this thing. We don't really understand what the ritual 
does, except that it's important to them that it continues. And we don't really know, like, we don't learn the story of why it started. There's no flashback to colonial times where a pilgrim makes a deal with the devil. We're just left to infer that, like, something happened in the past. These people started doing this ritual, and it did something good for them. Like, it keeps the town prosperous, or at least they think it does. Or maybe it just keeps the town existing, because the town is pretty much destroyed by the end of this story. Um, And it feels like... I think that makes it feel more real to me. It feels like lots of dumb traditions and like religious fundamentalism where it's like, we need to do this thing because this is the way we do things and that's important. And it's so important that I'm going to kill you and make your life miserable over it because you threaten the sanctity of my stupid tradition that I have devoted my entire life to. But I mean, it's kind of like that kind of dilutes the sort of villainy of Jerry because I kind of get this feeling from him that he is like he's just as like he in a way he's just as much a victim as the October boy the October boy is portrayed very sympathetically yes and I feel like the the one of the most successful parts of the story is when he turns the point of view onto the October boy and mm-hmm. you and you kind of you get that sort of backstory about what happened to him on the night of the hunt and when he thought he was the victor and how he was you know he was in fact killed and buried and then his father this is the I thought this was the saddest touch his father was responsible for caring for the growing of the Scarecrow, and then on the Halloween, the day of Halloween, the father's job is to go to the pumpkin field, carve the face of the punk of the October boy, and cut him down. And then they, there's this weird, but really interesting, and I kind of I think it's very avant garde choice about this whole candy thing where his chest is like opened up and they fill it with candy and the candy becomes both like the fuel that runs the October boy, but also the enticement for the boys that are hunting him. Yeah. He uses very early on the October boy, uh, steals a car. And part of how he steals the car is he lures the teens that are driving it away with the candy because they're so desperately hungry. They start eating it and they let their guard down. And he has like, he fights them. Very early on, the October Boy almost seems, feels like the Terminator. Uh, and then he turns into the Terminator from Terminator 2 because he gets to be emotional and empathetic. But I want to get back to the thing you were saying about the vagueness of the ritual and the goals of the Harvester Guild making Jerry Ricks seem less villainous. I think it makes him more villainous. Because Jerry Ricks is like every shitty conservative dickhead that you know. He, what makes him bad is, yes, he is also being manipulated by, like, the guild and this doctrine. But what makes him bad is he doesn't question it. And the reason he doesn't question it is because not questioning it gives him power. And he uses that power to hurt people. Yeah. I, I it doesn't matter to that. Jerry Ricks whether or not the ritual, like, makes the crops grow. What matters to Jerry Ricks is that the existence of the ritual lets him be powerful and lets him control people. And I think that that, more than anything, makes him totally vile. But also, like, you know, almost disturbingly human. He feels very much like a a real guy, despite being insanely evil. I kind of wished 
along with that, I kind of wish that that the October boy was kind of more bloodthirsty and that he went on like an even bigger rampage. I mean, he did, in essence, destroy the entire town. But I felt like his rage towards what happened to him should have like, I think that's what they, the town, that's what happens. They, they expect him to come alive on Halloween and to be confused and kind of almost like a berserker where he just runs through the town wreaking havoc. And then it's the point of these boys to take him down. Yeah, but I think what's really cool is there is a part where these boys make a run at like the butcher shop and the butcher shoots him with a shotgun and turns into this big fight. Which is the first thing that sort of lures Jerry Ricks away from Pete and, uh, before the fire starts. And later on, people are talking about that, and they're blaming the October Boy for all of the deaths that were caused by the other people in this town. Because the October Boy, he's always, like, this misfit guy. Like, right. it's this story about how, like, in order to survive, like, the, the like, bullying and, like, isolation and ostracization of uh, figures that the town deems abnormal are not just a byproduct of living in a small town. What Partridge is setting out in this story is that that is a necessity for these towns to work because they're a broken, flawed system. And so the October becomes this like sink for all the hate and aggression in the town. He doesn't need to kill anyone on going on a rampage because they just blame every death and violence and all of this underlying aggression in the town on him, and he becomes this pariah and then this, this martyr for them. Every year they get to symbolically kill the October boy and purge themselves of their sins. Even though all the bad things that they think the October boy did and all the bad things he represents are stuff the townspeople themselves did in, you know, full knowledge of their actions. Yeah, I can see that. So it's like everyone else is seeing a slasher movie play out with the October boy as the villain. But because we see from the October Boy's perspective, we know this is actually an action-adventure story with the October Boy as the protagonist. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, but I mean, it's kind of like he... The boys are... They're not so much groomed as they're sort of just told the legend of what happened. And then five days before Mm -hmm. Halloween, they're all locked away to be hungry so that when they get out, they're so hungry and food starved that they start acting themselves like killers on the loose. But they're also their entire lives told the reason you can't get out of this town, the reason you're unhappy here is the October boy. The October boy is the one uh, obstacle that is sitting in your path between you and the freedom that you think you deserve. And then in that way, the October boy metaphorically stands in for every, you know, person and group that the reactionary elements of these small towns demonize. And turn these, like, savage teens against, and that's how you get, like, lynchings and stuff. Yeah, I definitely, I think it's, like, a comment. I know that it was set in the 60s, and in my mind, it might have been the later 60s. I'm not quite sure. Before Vietnam. Right, because that's what it reminded me of. It was kind of like this whole concept of, like, this small town mentality about, like, you're going to get out of here... And and young men who enlisted in the war, their families were treated like they were, like, celebrities because their sons were, like, proud American patriots and they were sent off to the war. But what the town didn't realize was, like, the war was so awful 
that they were literally sending like their children away to be killed. So everyone who was in the town who thought that the person who defeated the October boy, they didn't, they didn't know, I guess. I'm assuming they don't know that, because why else would they keep doing it? But they, I think they know by the time, most, some of them start to know by the time they become adults. Like Pete's dad clearly knew that whoever becomes the October boy dies, and he's scared that Pete is going to become the October boy because he's exactly the kind of person that does. And even later on, as he's dying, uh, Jim, the the current October boy, comments that he felt in some way that Pete was destined to become him, and he they have managed by working together to save Pete from that destiny. I also thought it was interesting that I think that. It's an interesting twist that Jerry, everyone in the town has children. Mm-hmm. And then uh, most of them have sons, except for Kelly. You know, she was an only child and she was mm-hmm. a, a girl. Jerry doesn't have children. Yeah. So he has no sacrifice to contribute to the hunt. Yeah, it's part of why he's such a good villain. But it's also, you know, all the other adults stay away, except for the butcher who was watching his store yeah. but most of the adults don't get involved in the hunt except for jerry yeah and he's right there in the fight with the kids mm-hmm. which i think is interesting but it kind yeah, he's of he's kind of like this he's like the scumbag he like didn't grow up he's a bully who stayed the bully and now he gets to be the most important guy in the town and he thinks of himself as the most important guy in the town which is part of why he's so mad about the idea that kelly haynes or pete mccormick or the october boy is going to break this cycle and rob him of his power. But I mean, I mean, I, I mentioned it earlier. I really like the part where you see... Because it's kind of like a take on a horror movie where, you know, there's Pumpkinhead and he's just rampaging through the town and killing people. And you watch that and you're like horrified because it's like, oh no, a monster's coming. But it's kind of like a flip on a horror story where it's like you get the point of view of the monster. Mm-hmm. And it's not like Rawhead Rex... You know, because we have to talk about Clive Barker on our Halloween episode. His, like, his point of view is he's, like, a crazy berserker who's just running through this British town. And almost the same thing. He's running through the town. He's causing all this havoc. But he's so primal. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he is literally, like, a horror movie monster. He's just, like, smash, smash, pee on things. You know, (laughs) go back to that episode. You'll, you'll hear more about it. But, like, the October boy is, he was previously human, and I think his humanity is reflected. And I think that's the problem that his father has, because his father is literally waiting for him to return. Mm -hmm. After having this sort of, after sending his son to the hunt, Mm -hmm. and then watching his son win the hunt, and then watching his son be murdered, and then buried, and, and then spending a whole entire year... In the town, in this luxury life that his son has provided for him, mm-hmm. without ever saying to anyone in the town, protect your children, you know, this is going to happen to them. He's then forced to go back to that field and interact with his son again. And then he's told by the town, wait in this church, like this mm-hmm. holy church where you, you know, you put your faith in there. Wait for your son to come back. And if he makes it back, kill him. Yeah, or to convince him to let himself be killed for the good of the town. Uh, and he can't do that, and he shoots himself in the head. Yeah, and I kind of, like, 
I was kind of sad because I wanted them to have that final interaction or I wanted to have some resolution from the father for the choice that he made to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if he like committed suicide because he didn't think his son was going to make it or he committed suicide because his son was going to make it. I mean, I think either option is, is equally devastating to him. Um, what was I going to say? Something. Oh, we didn't say it, but the I don't think we said it explicitly, but the person who shoots the winner of the run in the head and buries him in the ground is Jerry Rex. Of course. Like, he was the one, he put the gun to Jim Shepard's head and killed him, and then buried him in the dirt where he rose again as the October boy. And I think he, I mean, it might be like you said, he enjoys that aspect of, mm-hmm. like, the brutality. I really like the tension that was generated between Pete and Jerry, and mm-hmm. between October boy and the town, and the interactions. I mean, even though they were small mm-hmm. vignettes of, like, interaction i thought it was really really well done yeah um what's i gonna say and then there's also something to be said about the way that this is kind of like it's it's sort of a, a comment maybe on like the way that these towns treat the people that get out of them where it's like how many artists are there who their hometown sells themselves on being that artist's hometown where if you experience that artist's work or like listen to an interview with them it's obvious they hate that place and it made them miserable and this feels the same way where it's like they get to celebrate there's like all this graffiti celebrating jim shepherd and everyone loves him even though he obviously hated the town and the town ultimately killed him and they're trying to like continue their existence on the back of his success at the run even though that they destroyed him yeah i thought i'm i th- well, even when he won that, when the family got that large house, and mm-hmm. of course, a lot of specific detail about the type of car that they were awarded, because it's mm-hmm. a very, the story's very masculine and very car-focused. Yeah, there's a whole thing he's, with, where he steals the car. He's driving, the October Boy's driving the car through a lot of it. He gets in a car chase with Jerry Ricks right before he gets in the church. And of course, the car is a muscle car. Yeah. So... But also there's a whole bunch of, like, um, very manly, masculine metaphors. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that whole, like, car metaphor, and then there's that, like, um, movie metaphors, and they have, like, the uh, hot ladies and tools. Like, there's all these, like, things that are, like, nods to, like, traditional American masculinity that are, like woven into the story it's also clear from the descriptions of jim shepherd before becoming the october boy that he was like a greaser yeah he's got like a leather jacket that's what makes me think this is so stephen king because that's like a, like if it had even just one basic reference to like baseball i would be like okay this guy is writing homage to stephen king there's a cover blurb from stephen king there's a i think there's a lot of like you can see like in my mind there's three really core references that Partridge is drawing from. And one is Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And then one is the Clive Barker monster on the rampage. And then the third one is sort of like a homage to like Shirley Jackson. Like this is a lot like the lottery yeah. where the people are in this sort of cycle and they're afraid to break that cycle because if they break that cycle, they're afraid that something bad would happen. And I think that's what's going on here. Uh, I will say that there's, like, as far as criticisms go, like, 
There's not a lot of room for a lot of the characters besides the October Boy to be too fleshed out. Even Pete is mostly his characters mostly suggested at rather than directly experienced. Like the October Boy, we get a lot of. He is very well fleshed out, but like he, we spend the more time in his directly in his head than we do with anybody else. Um, also, everybody kind of talks the same a little bit. Everybody's got this like very like clipped. Uh, intense like syntax. I think I I. There's always like, you're, hey, buddy, you're cruising for a bruising, and if you don't get that straight, you're gonna walk right off the edge. Like everyone sort of talks like that. That's how you think the people in the <laughs> hard travel people in the Midwest talked in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. I think a lot of it has to do with like the length of the story. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, you could flesh it out to a full-length novel, but I don't know if it would have been as successful. I think that he sacrifices the dialogue and the character development so that he can have more action sequences. I just want to be clear. I don't actually think that the quote-unquote lack of character development or the dialogue is a problem. I'm just saying those are things that you... like. Those are, are things you notice, but I, I don't think that they really affect the story all that much. Like, I don't really need that much more of Pete's character. Like, I get it. And I kind of like... I like the dialogue. I, it is just, like... Kind of got a little bit of a, a soapbox. I feel like people have this... People have been trained by bad criticism to think that stylized dialogue is inherently bad. And a lot of very lazy criticism is about, like, these people don't talk like people. Or all these characters sound the same. And I feel like it's almost never true. It's almost just that they're doing something kind of stylized and heightened. And um, it bugs me. But wouldn't you be groaning? Like, you know when you read those books where it's, like, set in the old-timey South and and they, like... The affectation is so exaggerated in the dialogue that Mm -hmm. you can't... It becomes, like, almost unreadable. Sure. I mean, that's like the opposite of what's happening here. But I feel like I would rather read more about the sort of actual hunt that's happening mm-hmm. than to read more about, like, Pete and the problems he has with his dad. We know he has problems with his yeah. dad. Yeah. You know, I mean, you get the, like, bare bones characters, you mm-hmm. know, the details, and then you flesh it out in your mind. Because everybody knows a character where he's, you know, he's the oldest son, he has a complicated relationship with his father... The town is shitty. He yeah. uh, I think he does a good job. A good there's a good technique at play where the uh, because he connects the October Boy and Pete so much by fleshing out the October Boy in a way he fleshes out Pete. Where it's like we we come to understand what Jim Shepard was like and what position he was in, and it's like well Pete's the same guy a year later, and so we get more of his character by getting more of the October Boy's character. There's also an interesting narrative device at play where the narration is kind of in second person to the reader under the premise that the reader is a resident of this town and a former winner of the run who became the October Boy and then was then killed. Because there's a lot of like, you know what it's like, you were there, you felt this. Yeah. Uh, Which is cool. I think that's a neat technique. I I thought that the character I like this sort of visual description that he gives of the October boy about his mouth and then the fire. But see, this is the part that confused me because 
like he cuts the mouth and then the fire grows and then he becomes sentient but it doesn't really say like why some kind of dark power that's powered by this ritual yeah i get it there's there's a lot of unanswered questions it didn't really bother me that they weren't answered because it's like i could fill in the blanks i've read other stories there's a dark power at work in the cornfield blah 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 they made they forsook god and made a deal with with evil powers i get it i get it it made the crops good and now it might be making the crops good or it could just be magical thinking and they're like some cost fallacy to bought into this ritual at this point to question it i kind of, yeah i kind of i feel both ways about that i feel like it's a sophisticated move on parcher's part to assume that the reader knows about mythology and folklore and and kind of like supernatural traditions that they can figure out themselves how this thing works. Mm. But then I feel like if maybe the story was longer, he could go into that. Because sometimes that sort of like makes the story richer if you get that sort of... Yeah, I, I think so. Um, yeah, no, I, I totally... I, so yeah. is there a sequel? No. So the, he wrote a... He put out a, a collection of short stories that are also Halloween... Uh, inspired or connected called Halloween Jack and that has a novelette in it that I think is set in this world and in this town but I believe it is the story of an earlier run it sounds pretty interesting where it's like one of the boys is like a killer and the October boy is trying to stop him or something I want to I haven't read it but I want to check it out but the cover is like a big is a picture of like the October boy's face it's like a big like burning uh, jack-o'-lantern head that's interesting because that sort of creature is found in... Well, it's found in, in some folklore. Mm-hmm. And it's also like sort of this iconic 80s horror creature. Yeah. And it's also a, a janitor in the dreaming. Right. Yes. <laughs> but he's not... We don't really know if he's... Could it be the October Boy? I don't know. Here's my question for you. Is the October Boy a plant elemental? He's described as his hands and feet and body are vines... He's got fire. He's got the memories of a dead person. Kind of seems like maybe he's a plant elemental or some kind of artificial plant elemental. I mean, that could be. But, I mean, we really don't know. He also ends the story by being on fire and burning down a thing, which is kind of a go-to move that Swamp Thing does. Could you just picture Swamp Thing, like, laying, like, lounging on the log, just reading this little paperback? (laughs) Well, we know that Abby likes Clive Barker. That's true. That's true. We did see that. (laughs) So I don't know. My question to you is, what happens if the October Boy wins the hunt? The town burns down. But I mean, he burnt the town down. I think the town is destroyed. The town is destroyed. I think he was always going to win this this run. Um, And I think, like, the town will be destroyed in some way. And it just happens to be in fire. But that's the thing. Like, there's this question where it's like, does the ritual do anything? Did he... Like, he burnt down the town, and he won the game, and the town was destroyed, but he already lit the fire. So it's like, maybe nothing happens. Maybe nothing happens if he wins or loses. Maybe all that matters is people think it does something. And by winning, he proves it doesn't, but he also gets to destroy the town and explode in fire and burn up the movie theater. It's also that when he walks into the movie theater at the end of the story, he's like, this is where stories go to end, and my story is ending. And I, I, I like that little part. Yeah, that movie metaphor. I, when we did our last Halloween episode, we talked about Rawhead Rex. Yeah. And then you made that. We did our last Halloween episode, we talked about the Hellbound Heart. Oh, the Hellbound Heart. I'm sorry. 
previous to that, at one point we, in our previous podcast manifestation, we talked about we're all head wrecks. Yeah. And you could see if you can find that at some point. But you said something that I remembered from that, like year, nearly two years later, where you said that the monster was toxic masculinity. Yeah. Is the monster toxic masculinity in this story? Mm, sort of. I, I think what's more going on here is the monster is like uh, conservatism. Because I think that's like a running theme now in our podcast where the monster is The monster blank. is blank. This is a horror story where the monster is blank. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a thing I go to a lot. It's like if you wanted to do a dried up brain drinking game, that could be one of your things. Oh, Nate compares a story that's not a horror story to a horror story. It says the monster is an abstract concept. So Overall, I thought it was fun. I enjoyed reading it. It was very fast-paced. Yeah, it's a fun, poppy read. I mean, it's not like mind-blowing, you know, genre-defining work. But I think it is really fun uh, and very well-executed and, like, skillfully crafted. I wrote down that it was a fun read, car-focused, good, clean, manly fun for Halloween. Yeah. I was surprised by how much, like, how... I don't know how to put this. Like... I expected the October Boy to be more purely physical and to use the knife more. But he, like, drives a car, he <laughs> uses a gun. Like, he does, like, comparing him to the Terminator, he does act a lot like the Terminator. I like the one specific detail about how he's driving the car, and the comment is it's really hard to drive a car when your hands are twigs. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of talk about, like, his feet making, like, broom noises, like, whisk broom noises on the, um, on the ground when he's walking, because he's just got, like, vine feet. Uh, he kills Jerry Rex with his own gun. That's another detail. I don't know if that's important or not. But he, oh, he does it in a, it is important because he does it in a mirroring of the way Jerry Rex killed him, where he right. puts the gun to his head and shoots him. And there's, he's like, Jerry Rex remembers shooting him like that but then by the time he hits the ground he doesn't remember anything because he's got a bullet in his brain yes yes but um i thought it was good it's really like there's a nod to like classic horror in there and and especially like horror films yeah i mean i think it's like a twisting of the concept like i said it's a twisting of the concept of this classroom movie it's like the the October Boy is presented in and out of universe as a slasher movie villain, but as the story goes on, we come to understand that's not what he is at all. Yeah. He's something else entirely. He's this tragic figure. Uh, you know, he's almost—it's almost more like um, the trappings of the story and what everybody in the universe thinks it is is a '80s slasher movie, but what it actually is is like a more, sort of more uh, romantic earlier kind of horror he's more like a universal horror monster like a frankenstein or you know something like that or a phantom of the opera or something like that yeah yeah uh this would be i think david slade is a good pick to direct it but i this would also be an amazing sam raimi movie i think so but i think sam raimi would probably lean more into this sort of goofy graphic horror part of the Yeah, monster. but can you imagine the end scene with the fire and the October fighting Jerry Ricks and like a Danny Elfman score like slamming away like as this fire like engulfs the town and he's having a shootout with this evil sheriff 
who you know you know he would be Michael Shannon, right? Of course, he has to be because he gets in, he. That's the perfect role for him because he gets, Jerry gets increasingly crazy. He also gets a bunch of injuries in the same way that Michael Shannon loves to have his characters like by the end of the movie be all fucked up physically and mentally. <laughs> he gets like his shoulder shot apart by the October Boy, and he gets in this car wreck and he's like bleeding out of his face by the end of it. Yeah, it's it's definitely gonna be interesting to see how they how they deal with it. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about it? Hmm, I don't know. Uh, small towns, conservatism, religious fundamentalism. It's a very atheistic story. Like, there's lots of talk. The October Boy is explicitly a Christ parallel, but he talks about like the cross having no meaning to him, and like. He kind of burns down a church at the end of the story. Yeah, I kind of thought like that was kind of heavy handed, the use of the church. And then sort of also like the church with your father inside and you have to sacrifice your son. I mean, that's very, you know, biblical in a lot of ways. And then, you know, it's in the field and he, you know... The father has to prepare his son for yeah. a sacrifice. I mean, it, and the scarecrow is kind of like on a crucifix. He cuts him down from a cross. He returns to a place with a cross. But Jesus isn't stuffed with Clark bars. Uh, but you do eat of his body. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Podcast over. Done. <laughs> Check. Uh, yeah, like I said, I like this a lot. I thought it was really fun. I recommend it. If you didn't take my advice at the beginning, but you still want to read it, you should read it. I don't think. Knowing the setup is going to affect you that much, but I just wanted to acknowledge earlier on that I, there is some sort of enjoyment that would come from going into this a little more blind. I think I'm going to read the that short story collection. I at least want to read the um, the other story about this town. I don't know if I'll have time to read it. I, I'm I'm seriously committed to Hercule Perel. I really I don't know if I could take on another project. Yeah, is there anything else you want to talk about? Well, I wanted to talk about this book that I had recently read. It's called Magic for Liars by Sarah Galley, published in 2019. And she is a writer, and her most well-known series, River of Teeth series. And it's an alternative history where, in the, and it's based on a true event. I did just some research. I went down that rabbit hole and I did the research. Oh. In the 1920s, the federal government had this, proposal that they were going to populate the Mississippi Delta with hippos. Okay. As an alternative meat food source for people in the South. Okay, that seems like, like a bad idea. Like post depression, they were this is there were gonna be hippo farmers. So this series that she writes, the premise is they did that. And then they realized that hippos are actually very brutal and Yeah. And then they start to overpopulate and they take over the entire Mississippi Delta. And then there's three or four books in the series where people have to deal with these man-eating hippos that have taken over the Mississippi Delta. And the complete culture and climate of that area has changed because of these horrible hippos that live there. So that's her main series that she writes. And then she just recently published this book called Magic for Liars, which is sort of like a gritty noir detective story about a young detective who is called into a high school for students that have magical talent. And so she goes there and she's 
investigating a murder that happened on the campus. And it turns out that her sister, who is her twin, has magical abilities and she does not. So then she has to sort of solve the, the mystery of who, who magically murdered one of the teachers in the school. So it's kind of like this noir, urban fantasy, gritty sort of detective story, but it's set in a world where magic exists. So I really read it because it kind of gave me like this Dresden Files kind of, you know, because that's a contemporary urban fantasy that's really well done. But it kind of gave made me think like about the magicians, you know, because they're there's students who are studying magic in modern times. You know, there's not like this alternative world going on. And then she's like a kind of this flawed detective. You know, she's kind of like has, she likes to drink too much and she's kind of low ambition. And she ends up having to solve this mystery about magic, which she really doesn't know anything about. Hmm. Uh that sounds kind of interesting. The hippo thing sounds really interesting. I'm way... That sounds way up my alley. Well, that's why I asked you about it, because I was I was so sure that you would have read one no, of those I books. It does sound like a thing I would read, and it does sound like something I would be really into. Uh, do you... Um, do you know about the United States Army Camel Corps? No, but this is probably very similar, right? They had... They were going to... You know, there was this plan in, like, the mid-1800s, I think, that they were going to... Part of how they were going to settle the frontier was they were going to import camels and teach people to ride the camels because they would be better mounts in the desert than horses. And it didn't work out. I think part of why it didn't work out was because there was like a mule lobby that were like powerful and opposed to the usage of camels. <laughs> and But some of the camels got loose and for a short time in the American desert there was a very small population of feral camels. And there's a cryptid sort of sighting of this thing called the Red Ghost that I don't know if it was confirmed to be one of these camels or people thought it, or it just seems like it probably was one of those camels. But I don't think that that population of wild American camels exists anymore because they were pretty small. But that's what I thought of immediately when you were telling me about this hippo thing. I vaguely remember a fiction book that had that in it, but I cannot for life of me remember what book that was um yeah i don't know but uh yeah so there 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 are lots of dumb plants like that in the especially in the history of america because america it's is like, like when they were going to teach dolphins to spy on well they may have succeeded yeah. in that we don't know they did make a movie about that day of the dolphin it's got a patty chayefsky script <laughs> um yeah, there's lots of weird stuff. They were going to use cats with uh, radio bugs implanted in them to spy on Fidel Castro. Like, there's a lot... We, we, America came up with a lot of crazy ideas on what they were going to do with animals at various points in our history. Magic Noir, that's the other... She went from hippo alternate history to magic noir. Yes. Yes. And she, I think she also works for Tour. Oh, that makes sense. So... They, How does it stack up to other urban fantasies and, and, and sort of stuff like that? Well, is it a, is it, how does it stack up to the Dresden Files? Well, I don't, th I, that's my ultimate favorite urban fantasy. Um, I think it has a very sort of, it's very simple. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe it's just the first volume or whatever. But it, it, I, I get the impression from reading it that her focus was more on 
the detective and less on the magic. Mm-hmm. And I think the magic only comes into play because one sister has magic and the other one doesn't. So how does it how does it function just as a detective story? It's pretty good. I and, mean, it's definitely like a noir style. You have the, you know, the the you know flawed detective and she's sort of down on her luck and she's kind of unsuccessful and she has low ambition and then she's asked to solve this mystery mm-hmm. and then she and and it's very clear that she's never solved a murder so this is kind of like a new um a new thing for her but most of the way that she solves the mystery is almost by like coming to grips with her own like Problems that she had in her childhood and her own relationship with her sister, which kind of diminishes it. Yeah. So you read a ton of um, mystery stories and detective fiction, which I feel like a lot of there's a distinction between those two things. And there's a discussion to be had about it. I don't know if it's on this episode. But I think the problem with mysteries that are also supernatural is. It's very easy for the plot points and the failure for the complexity of the mystery mm-hmm. to end up being like magic. Yeah, so I was going to ask how you feel about, you know, these supernatural detective stories. Because I feel like there's a very specific and often underappreciated skill set to crafting a mystery. And a different skill set to crafting a, a detective story. Okay, here's... I want to lay out my thesis. A detective story is a mystery story where just as much focus is on the character of the person solving the mystery as there is on the mystery itself. Right. Like, it's important... Sherlock Holmes is an an example of a detective story because he's like, for those stories to work, we need to understand what this dude is like as a person. And part of the selling point is like, this weird guy solves a mystery and that's what makes a detective story rather than, here's this cool mystery. And I think like... I think whoever writes a detective story in their mind has already decided what type of detective. Yeah. You know, like, is this a Philip Marlowe? Is this a mm-hmm. Perot? Is this a Sherlock Holmes? Yeah. Is this, like, a Miss Marple? Is this... Part of the appeal of detective fiction is seeing... You understand how the dete- this particular detective works. So it's interesting to see how they solve the mystery. Just as much as it's interesting to see the mystery get solved. So it's like... You know, like, the appeal of, like, watching an episode of Columbo is that Columbo's going to solve the mystery in a specific way every time because he's got his method. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so there's a very specific skill set to writing these kinds of stories. And there's a different skill set to writing a fantasy story. And I think that there's a weird struggle in trying to integrate the both of them because... Part of why mystery stories work is because they're set largely in the real world. So we understand the rules of the world and how it works. And we're all on the same page when we start reading the story. And so it's like we know like we know how a gun works. So if someone gets shot with a gun in the story, we all understand the same amount of information. We being me and you, the readers, but also the detectives and the characters in the story. But... That all gets thrown out the window when we go into a world where someone can shoot a fireball out of their hand. Now we have to learn how the magic works in this story before we can really understand how the mystery works. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, that's kind of like, you have to be really good at and quick at world building. Mm-hmm. 
And I feel like a lot of times it's sort of this pandering, this pandering to urban fantasy where any kind of magic has to be like, is it like, you know, Hogwarts or is it like this or is it like a different type of magic or like, you know, so they're kind of like writing in this formulaic style. Yes, that's exactly the problem I have with a lot of urban fantasy or like fantastical detective stories like this is that in order to have the immediacy of a regular detective story, they have to rely on tropes. Yeah. Because it's like, and cliches, because it's like, well, you know, we don't, you don't know how this works, but you know how a werewolf works. And if the werewolf works exactly the way every werewolf and every werewolf story does, then we're good. And it's like, well, you, you started writing a fantastical detective story so that you could do world building and detective stuff, but then you stopped doing interesting world building in order to do better detective stuff. Or your detective stuff is going to have to suffer while you spend all this time doing your interesting world building. But I think what I like about this is, as opposed to just taking a pre-made detective and slotting them into a, medical, a, a magical world, like, it's Sherlock Holmes and he solves a magical mystery. She creates a character of a new detective and then she creates this world, which is a high school mm-hmm. for magically gifted children. And then she creates a sister who both went to that school and is now a teacher at that school and brings all three of those components together to make an interesting story. The part that I like the most, which I think is the weirdest part, is, you know how like in magic books, like people can heal people with spells? Mm-hmm. They're the two sisters, they're twins. Their mother has cancer. And at one point, she wants to ask the magical sister to cure her sister. And her sister can't do it because the magic to cure a human being is very complicated. So apparently how it works in this book is that you don't just do a spell or you don't just draw out the, the, the disease, but rather you explode a human body okay. and then you hold it in stasis and then you pull out the cancer or you fix whatever the problem is. And then you have to put that human being back together. That's which, cool. Which is why the magic is so complicated to fix a human being and why and because it's I like that better than saying like she just cast a spell and she cured her mother's cancer she couldn't cure her mother because she still has to do brain surgery yeah do surgery you you still you can be a magician but you still need to have an understanding of the human body and I just imagine visually like at one point there's a minor illness and one of the witches there she doesn't even call them witches they're just people who do magic is a healer and she performs that act but only on a very small part of the detective gets shot Mm -hmm. or she gets knifed and it becomes infected so she explodes her shoulder when you're saying explode it's like a like a medical diagram like it's like that's how i imagine individual pieces separated separated out. out and then the problem is is that you need to put it back together you have to remove the part. Like, you, she removes the actual infection, and then she has to piece that shoulder back together. And sometimes mm. it doesn't work, and then that's why you don't do magic to heal people. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's cool. That's a cool take on magic. I feel like I was be, maybe being unnecessarily harsh on urban fantasy and supernatural detective It's stories. hard because... I just think it's hard... Yeah, it's harder than people think it is when they start doing it. There's a lot of really bad urban fantasy out there. Yeah, yeah. A lot. And I feel like that genre especially 
is prone because I think it's really popular. So publishers will take things that are lower quality and quickly push them out. And people slap who, a cover with a picture of somebody's tramp stamp on it. Yeah. On it and push it out the door. I feel like that's less of a thing now, but for a few years ago. Exactly. That was like, there was, it was inescapable. It's kind of like the same thing that happened when Gone Girl came out and everybody was like, women love books about women that are in distress. And then there was a whole sort of flood of like, and this is a word I hate from the library world called read-alikes. This is a huge thing in public libraries. It used to be reader's advisory where someone would say, I like this book. And you would recommend books that were similar. Uh, now they call them read-alikes. I guess it's a promotion. Or it's term. like, if you like this, you should yeah. read this. Yeah. And I uh, think that's what is the problem that happens with urban fantasy. But a lot of it is pu- it's easy to push out. It's either to grind out an urban fantasy novel that follows the formula. It's almost like a romance novel. Yeah. Well, and you get like the double problem where it's like your fantastical elements are all built on cliches and tired tropes. And then your actual plot elements are also all built on cliches and tropes. And it just becomes this like, you know double stuffed or that's not a bad example because people like double stuffed oreos but uh, you know it becomes this like pumpkin spice laundry soap yes exactly (laughs) yes it is pumpkin spice laundry soap (laughs) it's just gone too far but i always hate that like where you know it's like it's like hogwarts for adults it's like the magicians but they work in a bank like that kind of stuff i Mm -hmm. hate that the magicians is one of the only really good examples of the it's like hogwarts but because it's like it's like hogwarts if hogwarts was like a real school and everyone was an asshole (laughs) (laughs) well i recommend the book and I and I think like if you're of the mindset where you want to read an alternative history about, oh, I'm going to read those. Those sound <laughs> dope. Those sound great. I'm 100 percent on board for this. I mean, I love I love alternate history stuff. I love, uh, you know, I'm big. We've talked many times on this podcast about how much I love adventure fiction. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, she's a really good. It's it's really fast paced. It's well written. You know, it doesn't pander. It's so I think like that alone makes it worth. Reading, I would highly recommend that. I'm curious to see if she'll turn it into a series because usually when anything has fantasy, magic, or anything like that, it is immediately targeted for a multi-book deal. Yeah, yeah. So, so cool. that's interesting. Uh, anything else going on? No, I think that's it. Just working on my pure row. I'm yeah. reading them all in order, so I'm actually reading the short stories in the order interfiled with the book, so there's a lot of back and forth, but I'm starting to see, after being on the 11th book, that there's a formula that she uses for these books. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, I did a similar thing where I, I read all every story in the Hellboy universe in chronological order, which was an insane undertaking, because there's so many, like, one-off, like eight page stories that were like in dark horse presents and it's like you got to figure out where this one is set and then also figure out like okay do i read this before or after i read the rasputin miniseries the rasputin miniseries starts in the 1800s but then it ends during world war ii and it's like when do i fit this one in see the agatha christie website has a convenient list that tells you exactly where to slot the short stories in how so how much perot have you read so far you're doing them by detective, right? You're doing each detective, right. but in chronological order. Yeah, I'm on. I'm on the book that I should be reading now is the Murder on the Orient Express, which I've already read. So, are I'm, you going to skip it or are you going to read it again? 
I'm gonna I'm gonna skip it because I just read it last year. Oh, you just read it last year. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, but which one is that? Like, which book is? I think that's how far the- into Perot's existence is Murder on the Orient Express? Because I always think of that as being like kind of the Ur text. But I know he initially is like mentioned in the mysterious affair at Styles, so but he doesn't show up. Yeah. This guy's just kind of like I met this cool detective. He was dope. I'm gonna detect like he does. Exactly. I think that this is the point of his career where he doesn't age until he gets a later part. So this is just like a bunch of highly successful bestsellers where he solves a mystery. Most of them take place on a train. In fact, Perot is obsessed with trains. I think a, I think there's at least four books already that have some plot point that has to deal with either trains arriving or train schedules. But I think that that makes sense to me because a train, it's a linear thing. It goes for a certain amount of time. It travels between spaces and shows up. Like it's a good tool to have in your toolbox for constructing the plot of a murder mystery because it's always a ticking clock. It'll send the thing away if you don't do it in time. It isolates you once you're on the train so it's a closed system. But there's lots of places to hide and you can move in and out and up and down on the train like it makes sense if you're writing a ton of murder stories to be fixated on trains because they're useful i think yeah that's true i think the problem that i have with agatha christie and it's not her fault but reading agatha christie so late in this sort of desire to read a lot of detective fiction is that i have read authors that were inspired by agatha christie Mm -hmm. and have used her plot points so when I'm reading her things, I'm like, oh, this is just like this book. Or, oh, how many times are we going to have like the like complicated switching of cups so the wrong person gets poisoned? But I think if I would have started out like reading her first and then reading other detective fiction, I would sort of, it would be impressed upon me more that she's the creator of these types of mysteries. Okay, so I looked it up. This is the, including one short story collection, the... Murder on the Orient Express is Murder on the Orient Express is the tenth parable. The tenth, uh, which so not counting the short story collection, you've read nine novels. You've read eight novels just about Perot. Right, and I read them consecutively. Well, not counting, we won't count uh, Styles, so it's seven. But I did read that. But it's, he's not in it, right? But I was going to ask, how do you feel about him as a detective? Because he is like one of the major canonical detectives of detective fiction like he's kind of the next one after Holmes like chronologically like before you get to like to the hard-boiled detectives I think he is most like Sherlock Holmes because a lot of the things are like hmm mm, mm, I see I see put something in his pocket and then three chapters later says remember the scrap of paper I pulled out of the fire Mm. I've stopped the entire mystery from it so then he tells you how he solves the mystery you're not so much as solving the mystery as going along with him until he gets to the point of revealing the mystery. Okay. But I think if I would have... If you read Perot the way that it was published... Yeah. Then you wouldn't read these books so close together and then the plot points that are the sort mm-hmm. of weaknesses in the story and in his character wouldn't be so quickly revealed. Yeah, that makes sense. He doesn't have an assistant, though, right? He does have Colonel Hastings as his assistant. But does he have serve the same narrative yes. function as a Watson? He, he certainly does. Why isn't he... Except he has a weird background in his 
character where he spends a lot of time in South America. So there's always these not, like see, Perot see, like, is is like he's some kind of rancher or something when he's in South America. Uh, Perot is like insulted that Colonel Hastings would leave him, and he always makes these snide remarks about how he's over in South America doing something nebulous with his wife. Same thing like Sherlock Holmes. Hates the fact that Colonel Hastings has a wife. But is Hastings in every story the way the Watson is? No. Or is he absent sometimes because he's being a rancher in South America? He is, but when he's absent, he meets someone and he says, Ah, you are now my Colonel Hastings. <laughs> okay, so that that's one. probably why Hastings is not... Like, people don't think of him like Perot and Colonel Hastings. They yeah. just think of Perot. But people think of Sherlock Holmes always with Watson attached to him. Because there's one part where Colonel Hastings come back for a vacation, and Perot is like, you're on vacation, why not help me solve this mystery? And you know that Colonel Hastings really doesn't want to solve a mystery with Perot, because he constantly makes him look like a dum-dum. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, what is up with, wait, but that also, doesn't that also happen in, the one, what was the one that we read? It's for the a, podcast. Yes. Isn't there also an incompetent colonel, British colonel in that? There's. Or he might be a major. She must have had, like, a bulletin board with, like, ten, like, index cards. And one of them was, like, bumbling police chief or dumb, you know, military man. Though I do think that one of the things we were saying with... What was the name of the story we read? The... Three Blind Mice. Three Blind Mice. One of the things I was saying with that was I felt like it was a commentary on her other story. So I wonder now if... In the same way that I kind of felt like the uh, the Italian... Smuggler guy was kind of a weird take on Perot. Maybe the incompetent major in that is a weird take on Colonel Hastings. I mean, it, it could be. Um, but I'm going to stick with it because. So, you're, are you enjoying? You're enjoying it overall, I assume, or you wouldn't. Well, it's hard to tell because you sometimes you just you started thinking you have to finish it. No, I think they're they're kind of like. See, also the side team. <laughs> I did not bring that up. Mm-hmm. Put that on the record, the permanent record. I was not the one who brought. No, oh, okay, I brought it up. I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, so you're enjoying it overall. It's kind of like um, bus reading. Sure. Like, you, you know, the, the mysteries are not that complicated. The characters are interesting. And none of the books are really that long, which is why I was able to read nine of them, mm-hmm. you know, just during the summer. What are they? So he's the first one you're tackling, right? What other? She's got Miss Marple, right? What yeah. other detectives does she has? She has what? Detective Battle. Okay, I've never heard of that one. <laughs> I don't know. And then Tommy and Tuppence, which is their sort of like a flapper kind of yeah couple. There's a couple different my, major battle. I think his name is okay. There's a couple different detectives, but I think her most. Yeah, popular cool. but i really i want to read until i get to the abc murder so i can finally watch the john malkovich adaptation oh, yeah. of that which is what i really want to do he so. i've never watched that but i've seen the ads for it he looks great in it i feel like they made it just for me i thought that they made the kenneth Branagh movie just for me but mm. i feel like actually they might have made this just for me uh yeah okay so um that's happening do you have anything else going on that's it unless you got something let's give them a quick update on what we're doing okay yeah so we are next episode uh we're gonna finish off october by finishing off swamp thing we're gonna read volume six of swamp thing it's the last one i feel very sad that we're gonna have no more swamp thing to talk about i mean obviously there's more swamp thing comics and we might talk about them at some point but this is the end of the the alan moore run uh and then uh we're gonna 
for November, we're going to put a little bit of a coda on our Sandman series. And we're also going to do a, uh, a farewell to uh, Vertigo. I mean, we didn't really talk about it on the podcast, but Vertigo Comics is is folding. Their DC is is uh, they're shutting it down, which is a huge bummer because so many of my favorite comics are from Vertigo, and I think that what are they going to do with the backstock? I mean, obviously I think they're going to keep selling them, but I don't think they're, they're going to re- rebrand them as DC. Or? Yeah, maybe, uh, or they're going to fold them into their. They have there's a longer conversation to be had about. But DC has a label that's like DC Black, that's like supposed to be like more adult-oriented stuff, but it's all original, or it's all um, pre-existing DC characters. It's like here's a Batman story, here's a Joker story, blah blah blah. They'll they'll probably fold the Vertigo stuff if they don't just keep the Vertigo name only for reprints, and they'll fold the Vertigo reprints into the DC Black. And I think it's a we can talk about this more. On the episodes coming up, but I think it is genuinely upsetting that DC is folding their imprint that would publish creator-owned and original works and are going to keep it alive in spirit with an imprint that only uses their pre-existing characters. It feels very cynical and just like an overall bad sign for the industry. Uh, But so, forget that. Forget that bummer of a statement I just made. We're going to read... our next novella is going to be Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman, which I believe is in all but name a Sandman story. And then we're going to do uh, Sandman Overture, which is his sort of follow-up uh, miniseries that he did a few years ago, returning to the Sandman characters. I believe is the story of what Morpheus was doing right before he got trapped in the uh, glass bottle. So it's a prequel? It's a prequel. He's referenced this, like, traumatic event that happened right before his capture before, and we've never really learned the specifics, and I think Overture is the story of that. Um, Yeah, and then, you know, like I said, we're going to be saying goodbye to Vertigo as a publisher, but we're also going to be taking a break from doing Vertigo comics for a little while after that. And Overture will be kind of our our send-off for the next little while. Okay. Yeah, I'm interested. I mean, I've read The Ocean at the End of the Lane... Yeah, I've read it too. But I would, I'm curious to read it with the information that you you think that it is a Sandman story because yeah. I would want to, I want to read it and see if I can see what makes you think that. Yeah, I'm also just interested to reread it because I haven't read it since like the day after it was published. Right. <laughs> so, um, but yeah. So next episode, Swamp Thing Volume Six. We're gonna say goodbye to Swamp Thing and Alan Moore. Episode after that, we're going to read Ocean at the End of the Lane. Episode after that, we're going to do Salmon Overture. And then after that, um, who knows? It'll be December, so maybe we'll do something seasonally appropriate. You'll f- keep listening to our podcast and you'll find out. Yep. Spoiler alert, uh, stay tuned and uh, watch out for the October boy. <laughs>